welcome back to Sloydcast. I'm your host, Mark Angelini, and I'm joined with my co-host, Mike, 60K, Hannah. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we're back. We are trying to get into a flow and slowly getting there. Um, And today we are joined by Rosie Rendell. Uh, She is a coppice woodworker, and I've been really excited to talk to her because I really think coppice woodwork and just the whole woodland management thing is a an under-discussed topic, under-explored topic when it relates to green woodworking and Sloyd and all that. So excited to pick her brain. Um, So Rosie, can you let us know where you live and give us a little rundown of kind of what your life is like, what your work is like, what your day-to-day might be like? Yeah, of course. Um, So I live um, in West Sussex, which is in the south of England, um, about Mm -hmm. 10 miles from the coast. So it's really nice. We can oh, go nice. to the sea a lot and um, go for walks and things along the coast, which is lovely because I'm not originally from the South Coast. I'm from Oxfordshire, which is much more inland. Mm. So um, it's really refreshing mm. to okay. be you know, by the sea like that. Um, I live with my partner, who's a tree surgeon, Phil, and my three children, mm, nice. who are greatly varying in age from um, 19 down to three and a half. Um, mm. uh, so yeah, I'm quite busy with that and trying to work at the same time. So there's lots to do all of the time <laughs> and we have two yeah. quite naughty <laughs> little dogs as well. <laughs> that doesn't help. <laughs> yeah. So you do, do you, you do coppice woodwork pretty much full time? It sounds like. I do. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's, um, it's a seasonal occupation. So the cutting time, you know, starts as soon as the leaf is off really, um, Mm. And then mm. you can cut right up until the spring when the sap rises. So that's mm. the winter job. And then I spend the rest of the year um, making products with the wood that has been harvested over the winter. So, yeah, I mean, it fills mm. up pretty much. There's not really a break in the cycle. It's a year-round yeah. process, yeah. <laughs> Sounds a lot like farming. <laughs> <laughs> um so I guess before we get too far ahead of ourselves, can you give us a little, can you just give us a, a definition of what coppice woodwork is and, and mm-hmm. coppicing? Because I'm sure a lot of our American listeners might not even know what that means. Okay, yeah, sure. of course. Um, well, coppicing is a process of basically cutting the growth down to the ground, down to ground level, um, and that rejuvenates the plant. So it sends out fresh shoots, um, and then they can be harvested on a rotation of, well, anywhere from five years plus, really, depending on what okay. end product you want you want to use it for. So some chestnut can be 25 years old if it's for fencing, um, right. down to like mm. maybe five to seven years for hazel coppice, depending on what you're using it for. So, yeah, it's variable, really, depending on who's cutting it and what, they, what they're doing with it. So, yeah, from what I've seen in your work, it looks like you're mostly using... Uh, chestnut and hazelnut almost exclusively is that right pretty much yeah i mean sometimes a bit of silver birch but it's mostly hazel really um with um, some chestnut too yeah well Mm. i don't cut the chestnut myself i tend to buy that in from you know colleagues and other other people working Mm. the woods nearby so because it's quite a different ball game really cutting (laughs) chestnut and hazel so i tend to concentrate just on hazel myself okay because i also hedge Um, in winter as well so trying to fit all in is just impossible you have to kind of pick which thing you're going to do otherwise you just have no time to sleep so (laughs) absolutely (laughs) since you met oh what are you saying Mike? 
since you mentioned it, can you can you give us a little rundown of what hedge laying is? Because that's something that I am incredibly fascinated with, um, mm. and it's all but extinct here in the United States. I mean, you, I don't even think then there's a few people like experimenting with it, but it's probably yeah. been a hundred years before anyone's done anything close to that. Oh, really? Well, I was nearly late for this uh, meeting with you, actually, because I just had a phone call from another estate locally um, who want me to go and look at some of their hedges. So, I mean, it's really, at the moment, especially, I think it's really taking off over here. People are starting to realize the importance of it. That's awesome. Um, It's so, so satisfying. I think it's probably my favorite, one of my favorite jobs of the year, really. So Mm. I get sad when, you know, when it's the end of the season. (laughs) I have to wait for months before I can do some more. (laughs) Yeah, there's something so satisfying about taking a scrambly hedgerow which is in complete tatters and you know it's overstood covered in ivy and then you you turn it into something you you know you just restore it and turn it into something functional and you're mm. you know prolonging the life of that hedge really then instead of watching it crumble yeah gosh mm. my first introduction actually to hedgling was from the show river cottage um, oh yeah and he had uh he had an old hedge blocking a bunch of sun to his garden. And so he has this guy come in, this guy and his daughter, actually, I think came in, they cut the, they cut it up. And I was like, Holy crap. They're just like cutting these trees, like almost all the way over and then laying it down. <laughs> like, that's crazy. It yeah. looks really um, drastic. And, doesn't it? When you first see yeah. it. Yeah. But it's really, yeah. then I started learning more about it and it's just such an incredible practice. It's, yeah, it's really amazing. Um, it's done some, slightly differently now. I mean, like <laughs> there are some videos, uh, some really old footage of, people doing it um around the wartime and mm. there's a man um a black and white video of him hedge laying and he's got i think a land girl helping him with the hedge laying and he's wearing an overcoat and a tie you know and a suit <laughs> like they used to <laughs> he's got the whole time he has a pipe in his mouth but that, so i don't do that <laughs> that's lovely <laughs> you don't you don't get dressed up when i do mine <laughs> I, i've always loved that actually about british like there's a lot of like imagery of british gardeners and stuff like wearing what i would consider like dress clothes and they're yeah. out of digging in the yeah. dirt it's just yeah i mean i don't know how they used to bend really but they yeah. seem to manage <laughs> that's so funny i had a question about hedge lane did that originate in the uk or i mean how far does the practice go i do you know i don't know the answer to that i could pretend and lie but i don't know where it originated. <laughs> um i know that it, it does happen in lots of other countries but Mm-hmm. where it started i really couldn't tell you i probably yeah. need mm. to find that out mm. well um, we have uh one of our next guests is uh he's a, a an american and he's writing a book on um coppice agroforestry and so he's actually done a lot of really fascinating research mm. um so he'll be our next guest but he has basically uncovered that it's kind of a european like a central northern european thing that's mm. been practiced for a very long time as records ago back to the romans wow. i think Wow. Um, but yeah, I don't know too much about it. So that's why we're having him on. Um, yeah, well, I'll, I'll have to listen to that then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You have to teach me a few things. Because he's trying to revive the practice here because it was practice, you know, I think I think some of the kind of last, because rem- you'll see, actually find tools. That, this reminds me, a friend of mine, he sent me a picture of a, a bill hook. Mm. And it was, I guess it was just sitting like in the corner of his house or something. He's like, what is mm. this tool? And I was like, that's a bill hook that's used for, for hedge laying and hedge maintenance. Mm. Mm. Um, so anyway, it's, but it's just, it's, if you saw the hedges here, you would be appalled. It's, it's just, they're just, they're either non-existent or right. they're just a total mess. Um, 
So have they been ripped out or were they just not there in the first place? Well, uh, it's a long history, but in the, in the late sixties here, there was a, the, the, a farm bill was passed. Mm -hmm. This is at least my understanding of it. And that was when they kind of created this phrase, go big or go home, um, Mm -hmm. with farming. And they literally encouraged farmers to plow all the way to the edge of the property. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's scary if you go to the Midwest, like Illinois, um, Iowa, Indiana, the I states. Um, I mean, there'll be, and it's common around here too, but there where it's like flat and all they grow is corn and soybeans pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, there'll mm-hmm. be corn, you know, 12 inches from the side of the road. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a huge era, I guess, from the late sixties through the eighties where farmers, they used to have windbreaks and hedges and so on. It was very common and they literally mm-hmm. were incentivized to just rip them out and replace that, you know? 20, yeah. 30 foot wide swath with corn, which is absurd, really, when you think of, like the economics of it. Um, right. and the- well, I mean, I think it's happened in this country as well, but to a lesser degree. But, um, mm. you know, there are pretty vast fields over here too. Yeah. Where, which, you know, in the past wouldn't have been like that. So right. I have heard that. Yeah. But I think, you know, the, hedge, the value of hedging is certainly being realized a little more recently. Mm. Um, okay. And the Climate Change Committee now are saying that the UK needs to increase their hedgerow network by about 40%. So, mm. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I think just people are starting to recognize that hedgerows are really crucial for wildlife and, mm. you know, sequestering carbon and all sorts. So hopefully there'll be more and more hedge layers as time goes on. Certainly on the Improvers Day that we went on the other day, um, there are some new trainees on that. and. Mm. The guys there were saying that it's becoming more and more popular hmm, with awesome. young people, you know, like wanting to learn it. There was that's one great. man and he was, uh, his actual day job was working at air traffic control. So <laughs> interesting. <laughs> he wanted to learn it. <laughs> wow. That's quite a shift. Um, yeah, it is. I'm curious. How did you, how did you get into the coppicing and the hedgling and all that? What was kind of your first exposure to it and what made you really want to pursue it? Um, well, when I left school, I did my A-levels and um, I was going to go to university. I got a place at Oxford Brookes University to do nursing. Okay. And then I got a summer job, <laughs> which um, changed my track quite significantly. Mm. And I worked for a landscaper and I gardened for years. Um, and then when my children were small, I met somebody on a, I went on a course to make a hurdle, mm. like a sheep hurdle, yeah. wattle hurdle out of hazel and um just really loved what I did and then eventually I did um, an apprenticeship with the people who who ran that course because I kept on pestering them saying you know can you teach me some more things and they were kind and sort of took me under their wing really Mm. and then it became like three days a week and then four days a week so built up over time and he he laid some hedges while I was doing that apprenticeship which gave me the bug really so that's awesome nice and then since that, I've had a few, a little bit of tuition from a man who's now like won hedgeland competitions over here, and he's based East Sussex way, um, Dave Dunk. Who, yeah, he's very good, and so I've learned a little bit from him too. Mm. Nice. But yeah, so it's just been a little a sort of a flow from one job to the next, really, and it's all linked together. That's awesome. Through the gardening and. So do you just always work outside? So you're basically like a contractor. People have hedges on their property, or they want um, different things built, and you essentially do it all kind of custom. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And and it's really nice here because um, I've always meant to build a website, but I've never actually, <laughs> I've never got around to it. And you yeah. haven't had to, it um, sounds like. Pardon? You haven't had to. It sounds like you just work as this sort of flowed to you. Yeah, it has. Yeah. And I think it's really nice when, you know, you're, especially recently, if I'm at the side of a road laying a hedge or something or on someone's property, the neighbor will come past and start chatting. And, <laughs> you know, before you know it, next year you're working for the neighbor and then their oh, friend great. talks to them and it just flows like that. It's a really nice way to get work. That's awesome. Yeah. So I haven't had to get a website um, yet. I mean, who knows what might happen in the future, but so far it's just been word of mouth really for me. And do you work just by yourself or do you have like a crew? What does that look like? It's just me mainly. Wow. Yeah. So this year I felt like I probably should ask some, someone for a bit of help now and again, because just trying to keep up with the job lists, you know, it's hard. I'm really bad at turning work away. (laughs) Um, I can't do it. (laughs) So I'm up at midnight going, Oh, how am I going to fit this job in? Yeah. But, um, Mm. so I, I advertised on Instagram actually just to see if I could get somebody to maybe come and do a bit here and Mm. there with me and found a really good guy called Tom. Um, Mm -hmm. so he's been coming in just on a casual basis because he's, um, changing career he was a project manager in london and mm. quite fancied changing his lifestyle since the lockdown and everything yeah. and he's very hands-on practical um and he's been really helpful actually just every week or so or every fortnight you know coming in and doing a day here and there helps me out greatly which is marvelous because nice. i need the help sometimes yeah 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 <clears throat> um I don't know what you're like at saying no to jobs, but I'm bad. <laughs> yeah, and no, I understand yeah. that. I, I totally understand that. <laughs> yeah, it's hard saying no. Um, <clears throat> so when you, uh, I'm, well, I have a couple questions. Um, <laughs> so when you're like, for example, with the hedge laying, what is our, most of your clients, like are they farmers or are they just people that own land and want to maintain their hedge? What is that? Because Cause I know there is a practical, like a farming, um, application for hedges for keeping livestock and mm. it's kind of like a living fence. Mm. Um, but I'm curious, like what's the demographic of a lot of your clients? Are they people that are actively doing something with their land or is it just part of maintaining, you know, maybe a land they have for recreation or they lease out or something? It's a huge mixture actually. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I would say it's a bit of all of that mixed together. So I'm working for some big estates um who have you know kilometers and kilometers of hedges so mm. i mean hoping that will roll on for years and years you yeah. know do a section every every year for all these estates and um i've also got private landowners who've got you know overstood hedgerows on banks mm. and just tiny little hedges in private gardens so it's just real mm. a real mixture mm. i haven't got i haven't done any that actually are too keep sheep or cows in or oh, anything okay. like that because usually on the big estates they usually already have fencing in right, place anyway right. mm-hmm. so for them i think it's more a case of restoring them to rejuvenate them yeah. you know they, they want to they don't want to see them deteriorate so they have to rip them out they'd want to make sure that they you know look after the ones that they have yeah yeah especially i think some of them maybe get grants to do that um oh, nice. and this year i've also started working for a local farmer as well so so yeah it's every all those people that you mentioned basically okay that's cool nice 
Um, and they're all very different also. So most of them are old hedges with, you know, an old piece of wire fencing that's grown all in, in <laughs> you know, in between all the stems and everything. So um, I've, I don't think I've ever laid a hedge which has been planted for laying. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was going to ask that. Interesting. <laughs> they're all moldy, rotten, <laughs> huge bits of wood. <laughs> so it's quite challenging at times, but I think I prefer them like that because it's, it's more to think about, and it's mm. even more satisfying when you get that result at the end. Oh, I bet. can't imagine. That was that was my next question. Is is there a limit to what species can be laid for a hedge, or does it does it not really matter? Any anything will re-sprout and, and grow. Most things you can lay, yeah. Mm. Um, even size-wise, you you can lay quite big, mature stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the regrowth on it might not be quite as vigorous, right. I suppose, if if you go too big. But if you can if you can pleach it and you can bend it over, mm. then it should pretty much grow, mm. in, in my experience. So yeah. And when you say ple- it's when harder, you say pleaching, bigger, that's but... the that's when you cut the stem at an angle and leave a little bit of the bark attached. Yeah, that's it. Because you're you're basically you're cutting down to near ground level mm-hmm. and what you want to do is create like a strap. Mm-hmm. So it's a smooth strap rather than, you don't want anything that's kinked because you don't want to stop the sap from rising right, up. Right. Mm. Um, yeah. So a nice smooth strap. So you, so it bends over nicely and allows, allows the water up into the plant and the nutrients, which then supports the, you know, the regrowth Yeah, and you get the regrowth coming from that base as well. So what's the lifespan of a hedge like, in your mind, how often would you want to repeat this process? Like if say you lay a hedge this year, would it be five years, 10 years, or does it depend on the site and the species? I'd say, I'd say long, lot, a lot longer okay. than that. Yeah. I mean, oh, wow. I, I've never relayed a laid hedge, okay. so I, mm. I don't know the answer to that question <laughs> either. Um, I've only, I mean, I've been doing it for probably about 10 years. So, wow. but I don't, I don't know. I've never relayed one, okay. so I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe ask your man next week. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, like, what is it? Um, what does it look like after four or five years? Can you even tell that it's been laid, or is, is it? Is there? Because I assume it fills out yeah, pretty well. It does fill out really well, but you can I mean, you'd have to look quite closely because obviously you get your vertical growth coming from all of the stems and from the base as well. Right. You can, in you know, depending on the hedge species as well, hazel would probably be quite easy to see because. It's the growth that it sends up is quite straight. Mm-hmm. It's not very bushy. Um, yeah, so you'd be able to see inside the hedge where it's been pleached over. Um, and I've also seen that there's like many different styles of hedge laying. What are like? Do you follow a certain style, or have you kind of just gone with the flow and work with whatever you have? No, I um, tend to I lay South of England South of England okay. style. Um, that's how I learned, and I think most people stick to the style that they you know started on and with the region that they're living in um but there are lots of styles i'm going on a training day for midland style shortly what are the what what are some of the key differences in the styles like what how would you distinguish if you saw a head how would you distinguish the style it was laid in well like for example south of england style the you know the brash the frith at the top of the plant yeah you, you, you want to lay it evenly so you have brash on both sides mm-hmm. and the stakes go down the center. Whereas, for example, Midland style, the brash gets pushed over to one side, the, mm. the 
the side with the animals in, you know, the, the field side. You. And the stakes go down the back edge and the back edge is quite clean. Uh, okay. That's just one example. Um, and your Devon hedges are laid extremely flat on top of banks. Huh. So it really varies depending on whereabouts in the country you, you go. And that's so amazing to me. <laughs> what, and what they're going to be used for, essentially. Yeah, guys, that's so cool. Um, There's a lot to learn. It sounds like yeah. it, yeah. How many, how many how many regional styles are there? Do you know? Uh, I don't know. I, I've, I don't know the total, but there are many. Yeah. What is it? What's yeah. the... Like, where does one style end and another begin? Is it a pretty, like, is it uh, by, like, county or? I suppose county borders, yeah, yeah oh, or, wow. or regional borders, yeah, regional regional styles. That's so cool. See, we don't really have that kind of history here, so it's, like, our, we don't even have, like, a culture that's lasted long, long enough to even <laughs> no. think of something like that. So it's kind of no. interesting to compare. Um, so have you had a go at hedge laying? Um, a little bit. Um, nothing very serious. I have, we have a hedge that borders one of our orchards. Uh, well, actually we have two hedges that border each of our orchards. And, um, I've told myself many times I've got a couple of bill hooks and, um, do it. I just, I've taught, I've told myself I want to do it, but it's just, honestly, it's overwhelming and I don't even know like where to start or I've read different. What sort of diameter is it? Is it big stuff? It's variable. Small? So the one side we have a lot of, uh, the shrub shrub called red bud, which is, a it's a legume, but it grows a lot. Like, uh, the wood is very similar to, I don't know if you've ever worked with like black locust. Um, but it's similar to that. It's very, it's kind of a coarse fibery wood. Um, and those are larger, probably anywhere from like six to, to 10 inch diameter, depending on, you know, which, which specimen it is. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. it's primarily that on the one hedge. And then the other one's a huge mix. It's got mostly really small stuff. Uh, there's like some pear and some smaller oak and, more red bud. Um, red bud kind of grows like it's kind of like hazel, but instead of the, the stems growing straight, they grow like in a bowed pattern. Mm-hmm. But a similar growth habit. It's kind of multi-stemmed and puts up a lot of shoots. Um, but yeah, I just look at it and I'm like, I don't even know where I would start. Like I, <laughs> I just I have analysis paralysis to be honest. Um, yeah, I'm spending more time thinking about what I was going to do than just trying to do it. So I'm yeah, I know what you mean. It's easy to get like that. Uh, and I used. <laughs> You find that like all the different species, they they behave very differently when you cut into them, which I suppose is obvious, mm. you know, because you're both woodworkers, aren't you? So you know that all the grain's mm, different, right? And the weather also affects it, right? Right. Um, so I'd re- so yeah, it's interesting how they behave. Some are much more snappy, some are lovely and fibrous, and they bend really well. It just depends what the species, yeah. what species you have really to play with. But it's nice that they're all different. I like that. Yeah. I've read some basic principles. Like one principle I read is you always want to lay the hedge uphill. So you want to lay all of your stems. Yeah, uphill. that's right. Yeah. And then you want to, yeah. um, I think this is what I remember. You want to lay, like say you have a gate, you want to lay everything towards the gate mm. instead of starting at the gate and laying away from it. Is that true? I suppose that's so you don't get the gap. Yeah. But you know, you if you've got the, the slope there, then that's can't really help it, tricky. Yeah. yeah. Depends, yeah. <laughs> so those are, those are the only things I really know. It's made me realize that talking about hedges makes me smile. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Which is a bit weird. It means I'm a bit of a nerd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're in the company of two nerds. So. Two nerds. I don't know do much. Do you love a hedge? I'm sorry? <laughs> I do love a hedge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I have not gotten into hedge lane at all or didn't really know much about the topic until now. Um, <laughs> but I'm really intrigued by it. And I, I have, a, a, I have a, a small yard behind our house. 
that I've been trying to fence in to keep deer out. Uh, uh, we don't have any livestock, and there's nothing planted in the yard, so there's nothing to you know really work with. <laughs> but now I'm really intrigued because I do want to do that. Like I, I would rather do a natural fence than you know get some pressure treated timber and put some metal wiring up to keep the deer out. So what would I plant? I guess is my question to start. And if so, how long would it take to grow um, to the point where I can then start laying the hedges? Well, whatever whatever you do plant, mm-hmm. you'd need it to be sort of nine foot plus in height okay. to lay it well. Okay. Okay. You, you want the height there. So, you know, if you plant something, keep, keep it trimmed on the sides, but leave the top to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, because then obviously you're pleaching it over. So right. you need it to be nice and long and whippy so you can weave it in and out. Right. So you're saying so you're saying I would buy a sapling, some sort of sapling that's already that height and plant it? You just let it grow. Um, well over here I see. You can you can buy things different heights mm-hmm. um obviously, but over here people generally just plant whips yeah. or, you know, mm. something that's knee height and then just wait for it to grow. All right. Got it. But but obviously then plant it staggered so that when you do come to lay it, it lays really nicely. I see. You know? I see. So you just make sure you space it out properly and you just it's a waiting game i suppose and hope and you have to then protect it from the deer right yeah <laughs> that's the biggest worry is protecting it from the deer cuz they eat everything and i had you might have to sit next to it for a few years yeah do you plant a lot of new hedges and what's what are some of the yeah. what are some of the considerations when especially if obviously you plant it and like the intention would be you to lay it down right. the road what are what are some considerations for that do you know i i've in my whole time i haven't planted any okay. hedges because mm. I haven't needed to because either the landowner has come in after I've laid it to plant or they've, you know, sent their forestry team out to plant mm. it. Mm. So I have not planted any hedges for laying, I'm afraid. Okay. Mm. I've seen it um, done. But a staggered, a staggered pattern is always preferable. Okay. Because as you're laying, you know, it makes it nice and even. Okay. Mm. Rather than in a line. So like a triangulated layout for the, the trees yeah. and shrubs. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Um, one key. What species would you What species would you plant over there? I mean, what's is if uh, when you have got hedges? I was thinking. Common? I mean, I've seen hedges in people's yards. They're not like you know tall hedges. I'm talking maybe like three feet tall, and they're mostly like some sort of very viney uh, bush or maybe like a some yeah, sort of yeah. There's a, a lot of a lot of around here. There's a lot of boxwood, holly. Yeah. Um, yep, holly. Yeah, there a you lot go. of cedar species. Yep, hybrid pine cedars. species. Like yeah. if you're talking like something that was purposely planted, yeah. Um, most hedgerows around yeah. here are just wild, so it's whatever happens to grow in that particular site. Uh, but you'll see a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of the redbud, like I mentioned, a lot of uh, oaks, a lot of poplar. We have tulip poplars is the common poplar species here. Locust um, maple. Yeah, black locust, black walnut is very common. Um, but yeah, there's very if if you see a hedge in America, generally, um, it's going to be around a garden or like a landscape setting, yeah. and it will be some kind of specimen. You know, it really it's more decorative. yeah decorative, expensive planting, right. Right. Um, and and its maintenance is you know trimming with with a hedge, hedge trimmer. <laughs> yeah, <So>. yeah. <laughs> it's literally just a bush that you just trim to shape. Yeah, to look usually nicely. it's made like square. I'm yeah, sure, I'm sure it's common in England. Bush. Yeah. They they use them primarily here for privacy, I guess. Like a lot of people yeah. in, in in suburban areas and maybe even urban areas, they plant them to to just as a privacy fence. Um, you know, yeah. a decorative privacy fence. But I um, so I do uh, 
land design and consulting. Um, and so I, I have a lot of clients that I help them design and, and lay out hedgerows, especially for windbreak and things like that. Um, or, mm-hmm. or just for, you know, for a, a visual barrier or, mm-hmm. or it's a productive element. Um, but I haven't done anything that was intentionally meant to be laid just because there's just not the skill set, uh, or really even knowledge of it, which is really a shame. Um, so <clears throat> that's kind of our biggest limiting factor. Um, yeah, you need something to play with. I suppose having a go at your own hedge is somewhere to start. Exactly. Isn't it? Mm-hmm. So I, fun. I, it's a good job I don't live there. I'd, <laughs> I'd have done it by now. <laughs> I know. <I'd, laughs> you wake up in the morning and you'd think, well, what's happened to it? <laughs> the only guy I know, there's a guy up in uh, New York State that I, I know just through the internet, and he's been playing around on his property, especially around, he has a lot of orchards as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's been playing around just just kind of doing it on his own and figuring it out as he goes. Mm. Um, but other than that, he's really the only person I, I know of. Um, so, but one, because, yeah, I mean, without, without laying a hedge, what happens to the hedges here is, you know, farmers come along and they flail yeah, it I've with seen that. the tractor mm-hmm. I've seen that. Mm-hmm. and it, all it does, it, it creates this gappy open hedge, mm. which, you know, has leaves all around the outside, but the middle is just right. sticks sticking up out of the ground. Mm. Uh, so it's, fairly useless like for birds right, and right. you couldn't you know you could a cow could walk through it right yeah it's just <laughs> much use for anyone. Just basically kindling standing there right right yeah um little twigs really standing up yeah that's what a lot of people yeah that's what a lot of people yeah that's what a lot of people don't realize is that the like a hedgerow uh, this is true so this is i know it's true in england as well but in america I've, we've said this on the podcast many times but and when it comes to like managing woody species whether it's a tree or a shrub or you know a woodland or a hedge america is just so like a lot of things we do in america it's just very controlling um, well he's <laughs> a little bit more of a derogatory term uh very like s- simplistic and 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 mindless mm. so like you know woodland management around here is generally if, if you just went to any forest it's either totally neglected and overgrown right. and sickly right. or it's gets clear cut every 20 30 years so that's, you know pretty much yeah, there's no like, middle ground there's no like maintenance there's no even i mean i'll i'll talk to people about this often um especially if i have clients that have woodland uh about like woodland management and it's just such a foreign concept right right even in the forestry practice uh which you know there's forestry like there's state forestry programs but they uh they're kind of focused on like you know financial reward um, timber management. So I guess long story short, mm-hmm. there's just no mind towards like that, that, that because there's a tree there, there's a tree. And so you don't need to do anything or there's yeah. a shrub there and you don't need to do anything. And, um, it's, I guess it's a lot like, like you were saying, where once it gets to a certain state, people just rip it out and then right. they won't do anything else. It might just let it, you know, turn back into a mess in the next 20, 30 years. Um, so we kind of face a bit of a crisis, I would say, um, yes. of, of really poor management of our of our hedges and our forests. Yes. Mm-hmm. I don't, and yeah, I mean, well, clear, clear fell happens here and it's, it's no, every, you know, people know that it's no good, but you know, there's lots of money involved, isn't there? Mm. Yeah. So it's a quick fix. Yeah, exactly. Just, <laughs> it's a crop, isn't it? Basically. Exactly. Yeah. You're cutting it like a crop. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so different from coppicing. Coppicing's amazing in lots of ways because of the different habitats it creates as you're taking a product away, mm. you know, you're providing right. something at the same time. Right. Yeah. I've heard that there's um, right. a lot of different species that are coppice dependent, mm-hmm. like wildflower species and so on. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, there's such a wide variety of plants and um, insects and creatures that live in coppice woodland, you know, and it's another reason why it's so important to protect those kind of areas. I mean, there are so many areas of derelict coppice in the UK um, because I suppose there just wasn't the call for it to get cut. Mm. And and so lots of areas just went into disrepair and, you know, became overstood. And I suppose now it's becoming a lot more popular with younger people again and coppice products are becoming more in demand again. So hopefully those areas that were once neglected will, you know, will become cared for once again. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, before we talk about coppice, because I do want to ask you a bunch about that. One last thing on the hedgling. I noticed that, um, well, may, I assume this is like, you can't really lay a hedge unless you have the vertical stakes along the length of the hedge. Um, cause it looks like that's kind of like a structural element. You weave your laid stems between those. What do you call that? element when you put the stakes oh in. you mean with the binders on the top um well just the the vertical the, stakes you put every so often down the length of the hedge okay so you so when you lay a hedge you you lay your you do your pleaching and you lay all your growth over okay. and you arrange it how you want it to be and then when you've done that well certainly with the south of england style and then you will put the stakes in afterwards oh, those after okay because the, the stakes will then secure what you have put down oh, I see and stop it from rocking you know to protect the pleaches from moving in the wind um, and then the binding that goes on the top that just locks it all together basically so it holds it all in place so are those until it becomes established are those things that you bring in or do you pull those out of the hedge like do you bring in stake material and, and pleaching material you or do really rather? mostly because I mean to get that quantity from a hedge would be difficult yeah, yeah. I think, you know, where, where you can get one, you'd obviously save it, yeah. but there's not usually enough for that because you put them every 18 inches or so, okay. you know, elbow, elbow to fingertip. That's the, ah, basically nice. the distance. Uh-huh. Like um, so you, you don't need to worry about measuring it. Just use your body. That's great. And um, yeah, I think you'd struggle to get enough, to be honest. And what do you, what do you commonly so, use for that material? Is it like a chestnut pole or? Some people use chestnut stakes. Yeah. Um, I tend to use hazel okay. and you can use willow on the top, but again, I think ma- the majority of people use hazel for the binding. Okay. Mm. And that's pretty critical to keep it all sort of knit together. It seems like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just gives it a bit more strength and security while it, you know, obviously when that vertical growth comes, it will eventually become more solid in itself, <clears> you know, <throat> it'll knit together nicely, but the stakes and binders at the beginning are, pretty necessary especially in high winds and things it stops it rocking around yeah, yeah. i'm getting the sense that because it tends to be in quite exposed settings you know right. or, or the edges of fields or on top of a hill or where it's going to get battered by the weather mm. i'm getting the sense that i need to plant a lot more hazelnut <laughs> so i have material <laughs> to work with down there yeah, do it. <laughs> yeah. i love hazelnuts they're such uh, they're one of my favorite plants to grow and the nuts are amazing mm. um yeah, I could. There's so many things I could ask you about hedgling. Um, it's just I. Re- <laughs> well, it's a shame you're not around the corner. You could come and have a I go. Know, gosh, Mike and I have we've talked about coming to the UK many times. Many times. <laughs> have you been? I, have you been before? Mike I, has, have. I have. I have. Yeah, I have. I stayed. Whereabouts did you go? I stayed in a small town called Hitchin, uh, just north of London, maybe uh, an, okay. an hour north of London. 
I was just there on, you know, uh, a mini vacation for a couple of weeks. Uh, at the time, I wasn't really a, much of a Sloyd fanatic, but <laughs> that, or as much as I am now. So, um, but yeah, I would love to go visit uh, the UK now. We've made some friends over the podcast. I think it would be really nice to meet in person and, and, and visit with. Yeah, well, the more the more podcasts you do, the more places you have to visit, and then you have to extend your holiday like yeah. several months oh, yeah. at a time. Well, con- <laughs> Especially if you're going to do some woodworking with all these people. Yeah, considering yeah. that ninety percent of our guests are from England, it would be right. <laughs> yeah, it's just why is that then? Is that is that just coincidence? Yeah, you know, I've, I was actually thinking about that the other day. Um, I don't know. I guess I guess the green woodworking Sloyd stuff is just so popular there, and it's yeah. Honestly, like if I look on my Instagram feed, every like probably every four out of five woodworking things that I'm following are from people mm-hmm. from England. Yes. Um, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I'm really curious uh, why that is. <clears throat> yeah. I'm not sure. I think is it popular where you are as well? It is, but not in the same way. Like, in, well, obviously, obviously it's skewed because England's a smaller country. There's less people. Right. Um, mm. So maybe that's why it's, is more, it's just more like condensed so to speak right um i don't know though i i I have a feeling it has to do with the history of england and and like i've had this thought too about uh gardening and 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 just the the traditions of farming and so on is you know england you you guys went through a war that really affected your country um whereas we haven't had that here since we've since we've been a country um So I, I kind of think that that has a lot to do with like why things are done certain ways. Obviously you're yeah. on an island, so that affects yeah. a lot too, but I, there's, there's a pretty, pretty big woodworking community here in the U S just not the, the kind of green woodworking yeah. that we're interested in or talk about as much, yeah. you know? Um, but is that how you two met each other through your woodworking? Yeah, pretty much. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Mike, Mike came to an event we have at our farm here and he saw me carving spoons. That was how we met actually. Yeah, um, <laughs> and I took off from there. <laughs> no, he's now he's a Sloyd fanatic too. Yeah, it's so it does spread. It is addictive. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we've. It's interesting that so many people that are very, I guess, popular through their Instagram or internet presence are in mm-hmm. England. I don't know what it is. Maybe we'll get to the bottom of it here one day with all these interviews. <laughs> yeah. Um. One day. So yeah, let's talk about coppicing because I I really I've been in love with coppicing ever since I learned about it, and um, I learned about it from a guy. Uh, there's a guy Dave Jackie out here in the states, and he popularized this uh, thing called food foresting or or edible forest gardening. Um, oh yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, and so he was. I, there's a few people in England that have popularized it. Uh, Martin Crawford is one guy. He's Devon, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, he he kind of he turned me on to this whole concept. Um, and then I learned about, uh, Ben law and I got really into his stuff. And so that was kind of my main intro into coppicing. And I've done a little bit of intentional coppicing myself, but nothing that's ever really amounted to, you know, I've mm-hmm. cut, I've cut trees down and let them regrow. So, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I haven't, well I haven't produced anything out of it except for the first tree I cut down uh, yeah. from that stump. Um, but it's something that's really, captured my interest and um i definitely plan to at some point intentionally plant an area that i will coppice down the road mm-hmm. and, and you have the land for that then. yeah yeah my wife and i we live on uh, her family farm and actually one of the so we have a lot of black locust here and How do, what is the growth habit of that then? it's um 
Yeah, coppice is very well. Mm -hmm, It's mm -hmm. uh, it's very fast growing. Um, Mm -hmm. You can put one, you can put a whip of black locust in the ground, and in five years, you can have a six inch diameter tree here. Um, Because we have a we have a very long growing season. Uh, It's like 170 days Mm -hmm. is our growing season, so it just grows in such at such a fast rate. Um, So I have done some coppicing with that, and that one is a particular interest to me because uh, the quality of the wood and at a young age is very high. So it's good mm-hmm. for building and especially for firewood and things like that. Yeah. Um, if so small after say five years or maybe even less than that there, say maybe three years, would you get whippy long growth, which would be really pliable? Then? Yeah. A bit I don't, like mm-hmm. hazel or not? Uh, the pliability of it at that stage, I'm not totally sure. Cause it is kind of a brittle, it's kind of a brittle wood in a sense. I mean, it's very strong. Uh, very fibrous, but it, it, it it's not very moist. I feel like yeah, it's kind of dry and it, yeah. it, it like cracks and and splint, yeah. splinters. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think it'll be that pliable because the moisture content. Is yeah, I don't know. On the low end, that would be something that needs to be played around with. But it's it's something that's so common and and what you see around here is once it gets to a certain height and diameter, it um it succumbs to this this fungi. So mm-hmm. you you rarely see a black locust that's say more than. 10 inches in diameter it's just very uncommon once they start to get that yeah. size they they start to senesce and i don't know what it is this this fungi just starts to colonize them and and, and rot them out a bit like the elms over here yeah probably yep yeah uh, some of the higher elevations here that we have on the parkway i've seen them seen uh, as about as big as a foot maybe a little over a foot in diameter but they grow pretty straight and if they're yeah. in the open they'll grow pretty straight so they're they're a great candidate for that um so is it is it good for splitting down and using to make? Yeah, yeah, it's great for splitting. Yeah. What would you use it for? Making spoons and uh, not so much for spoons. Things. I have carved spoons out of it. It's it's green. It's not too bad to work. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's got a pretty high silica content, so it's kind of hard yeah. on tools. Yeah. Um, historically here in this area, a lot of people used it for fence, fence posts. posts. Yeah, that's a big thing. It lasts. Oh, okay, a, so it lasts a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. A bit like a chestnut. Equipment yeah, exactly. For you then. Very yeah. much like chestnut because yeah. we used to chestnut used to be. Um, what I heard something recently it was like one out, eight out of every ten trees was a chestnut here uh, before nineteen. I think it was nineteen twenty, um, and so it was just American chestnut wood. Just I, I from what I've heard, it's similar in England. There's chestnut is a very common species, um, so that was the case around here. And then there's a blight, and uh, there's a blight, and there was a huge kind of gold rush to cut all the trees down in anticipation for the blight. Um, at any rate, we don't have that. American chestnuts very uncommon here any longer. Uh, they don't, and they, they don't live very long because of the blight. So yeah, okay. we kind of have to find these analogs, and we have oak, which is okay, I guess. It's not, from what I understand, it's not a very great coppice species. Um, but black oak is is for sure one of the one of the better. And then we have the the tulip poplar, which is probably mm. our closest equivalent to maybe like a hazel. Because yeah. it grows very fast, very straight, and the rods are from what just the playing around I've done, they they seem pretty flexible. Yeah, it's very high moisture content. Yeah. So, yeah. there's potential to kind of pioneer like a uh, yeah. You need to get plants. Yeah, exactly. So we should do it. I'm I'm really I'm really motivated now to to lay a hedge in my yard. Yeah. See, Mike's yeah. Mike's gonna, <laughs> Mike's gonna be a hedge fanatic soon. Yeah, I mean, I live, I live. Yeah, on, honestly, I, I, I recommend it. Yeah, I mean, I live in an area where it's, it kind of, it's on a hillside, so it's very sloped, and uh, I've had several quotes from people to put in a fence, and they've always quoted me really high. So I've, I've, I've kind of succumbed yeah, yeah. to the idea of doing it myself. <laughs> They're not interested, are they? I'm sorry. 
they're trying to they're trying to avoid yeah. it yeah yeah costs. i mean and there's and there's a lot of rocks in the ground so it's really hard to to dig a hole for a post and so i i kind of so come to the idea of just doing it myself so i gotta i gotta get really into it you know innovative and try to is it windy there as well yes uh yeah it gets windy yeah definitely uh so yeah. so a hedge would be better anyway right it wouldn't blow away yep. <laughs> yeah exactly. yeah and so yeah, I'm I think I'm I'm really having some interesting ideas flowing through my head right now as we talk about this, uh about how I'm gonna how I'm gonna do it. So So when it comes I look forward to seeing the pictures. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll definitely be posting some. I might even consult <laughs> consult with you and send you some pictures of what it looks like before. <laughs> Please do. Okay, we'll do. So when it comes to the coppicing, do you um you you said that you kind of you don't do so much coppicing just because of your workload. Um so do you have like local people around you that, that manage chestnut coppice or I guess chestnut or hazelnut coppice? Um, or do you? Oh, well, I, I do, I do coppice hazel. You, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I tend to do an area every year of, of hazel, but the chestnut I, I tend to buy in from I other people. So mm. yeah. And would, um, now is this hazel on, on someone else's property that you kind of are managing it for them? Yes. Um, yeah, it's this particular bit that I've just been working on recently um, over the last few years is on the Leckenfield estate. Mm. So it's just, you know, a big estate landowner and they have various areas. And this this area is very good hazel and it's fenced off. So mm. there's no deer damage. Oh, nice. um, so it's like a, a little haven, really. Oh, nice. And it's really good quality stuff. And you said you start cut. Do you start cutting that as soon as the leaves fall off? Yeah, end of October. But in England, there's a bit. It's a bit controversial, really, because whenever there's a hazel coppice, there's usually a gamekeeper. Oh, right. <laughs> um, so there's usually a bit of you have to, a bit of discussion about you know when you're allowed in to cut the hazel because you might scare the pheasants. Oh, right. and, you know, estates need their shoots mm -hmm. because they they bring in the money, oh. and so you have to just come to an arrangement depending on the estate, really, when they'll let you in. Mm -hmm. Interesting. But obviously, end of October is ideal because that's the start of the season, and you know to get the materials down and get your work in motion, you want you don't want to be left leaving it too late. Yeah. So, but luckily where I am, they they did let me in early. So, right. So, what does that can be a bit of a pattern. what does that look like? Do you um do you have like a do you have like a sense of how much you need to cut for a season? How does that work? Uh, I tend to just go from one year to the next really so i i, I get this year i gauged it from the amount i, I used the, in the previous mm -hmm. year so i've cut half my half my area so far and all those materials are allocated now oh, so wow. i will need to cut some more before the end of the season but i don't do it all at once oh. because obviously as soon as you cut it it's even though it's winter it's starting to dry right. out a little bit so i tend to do do it in two sections mm. two goes we get in there for you know a week cut one bit down and then later a few months later we'll go in and cut the rest if we need to otherwise it's still good for next year and do you are you cutting this with a chainsaw or handsaw or just kind of depends on what the material looks like yeah chainsaw, chainsaw. Mm. Do you just cut like yeah. a whole um what do you is it called a stool is that the right term yeah so tend to cut in cut sort of maybe three stools deep okay. and then lay them all out in a drift so you've got this huge long line basically. Uh -huh. So it's really easy to work rather than it all falling all over the right, place. Right. Mm. If you, as you cut it, you lay it out in a line. Okay. 
it's just much easier, more organized then, and you don't trip over yourself because <laughs> that it is very tricky in the, those woods. Yeah, I bet. And so you're, are you like bundling it and then loading it and taking it away or do you leave it on site until you need it? Um, I, I tend not to bundle it just because if it's bundled, it can walk off occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might get the odd person thinking, oh, they look like nice rods for bean poles or something and then come and take them. <laughs> so, you know, there's no one there to protect that stuff. Right. So I tend to leave it loose. Mm, okay. And then it's much less likely to get it's more intimidating. Lots of people in England, they just think, oh, there's a twig. I'll have that. <laughs> Even though someone else has cut it down, they don't seem to realize that it belongs to someone else. That's wonderful. The beanpole robbers. What the heck? Yeah. Yeah. The beanpole thieves. <laughs> Seriously. They come out in force. Who's <laughs> a thunk? See, that's the other cool thing. I really like because you guys have this, you have like this economy, I guess around like coppice products so like mm-hmm. people use bean poles or the, i've seen like the little twigs for for pea trellises mm-hmm. um yeah that's right so, yeah. so that's just but so I interesting think, i think that people lots of people still use bamboo and you know that kind right, of right. awful stuff mm-hmm. so we, coppice workers are trying to make sure that people that people can get hold of coppice yeah. products mm-hmm. and um get you know get their products into local garden centers and farm shops and places like that so that you know often people will say oh i really want bean rods but i just don't know where to get hold of them Mm. so you know the more coppice workers there are the better you know we need to get get bean poles in people's gardens and get rid of the bamboo because it's grown on your doorstep basically yeah seems crazy not to use it yeah i mean bamboo is like all you can find around here there's there's no alternative that's the thing um so can you are there like is it common that you could find a, a coppiced garden product at a at like a garden store around there, or is it pretty rare, like regionally? It's a bit hit and miss, to be honest. I mean, the big, the big chain garden centers, they don't have anything okay. like that. Mm. They just have, you know, the imported yeah, stuff. Yeah. Um, and I think mainly because they want to barcode everything, uh-huh. and so because they're a chain, they want to make sure that every garden center has the same right, thing in it. Right. Mm it becomes tricky to supply those places. So it's really, you know, privately owned mm. shops and smaller organizations, which will take, take the products from us, right. which is fine. Or we sell them directly, you know, but it's, it's finding an outlet for yeah. it. There's a really good guy who, he was running a little business around here called wild Sussex. I've heard about that, that. Seen little that. business. Yeah. I've but seen them on Instagram. Yeah. Have you? Yeah, well, he he acts like um, well, like a hub really for for all craft workers around okay, here. Nice. So, yeah, he's like a little shop, and so we all lots of people supply him with their different right. products, and then so that's a good outlet. But I don't know if he's carrying on this year. But yeah, finding little shops is the best way because the big chains it's harder. It's a bit like supermarkets, you know, they yeah. it's harder to get involved with those. For sure. Now, is there, is there like, it's all coppice woodwork, as far as you know, is it done by like small outfits, individuals, or is there like a corporate, like a corporate coppice company that like manages thousands of acres or hundreds of acres of coppice? Not as far okay. as I know. I think it's pretty much all fairly small scale. Okay, that's what I was wondering. Because yeah. I've seen, I've seen, there's, I follow so many different people on Instagram that are in the coppice world. Um, and I've seen, like, I've seen some pretty big truckloads of chestnut coming out of coppice stands and it just had me thinking like is that just a, I, I just didn't know what the context was of that 
Um, yeah. Um, well, I mean, they have different machinery, don't they? The um, chestnut cutters. So I suppose that is a slightly different, different scenario, okay. but certainly with hazel, it's pretty small okay. scale little, you know, man in the woods or woman in the woods, just, you know, th- two or three people at once, yeah. you know, working an area. So cool. Yeah. The chestnuts a bit, of, bit of a larger scale operation. Right. Right. Cause the, cause the chestnuts used in a lot more applications, right? Yeah, and for you know lots of fencing materials because right. it's very so, rock yeah, lorry loads at a time. Right, right. It's <clears throat> amazing. Um, so speaking of uh, fencing, you do a lot of really amazing um, woodwork with your products, uh, especially like the the gates and the woven screens and fencing. Mm. Um, Thank you. How did you get into that? Was that just sort of all part of? the whole process is just one more thing to kind of diversify your product offering. Um, well, the man who originally taught me, um, he, he sort of showed me how to make hurdles. He showed me how to make, he, he did make decorative panels. He didn't so much do the woven fencing in situ, you know, like the big fences that yeah. I do. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't really do that. I, I sort of, I don't know. I don't know how that came about really. I just was playing around one day and, made a curved mm. one around a tree <laughs> and then I suddenly thought well actually there's a museum around here which is just up the road from where I live actually and it's called the Weald and Downland Museum and it's an open air museum so it has houses from all different eras which they have actually dismantled mm. they've been given them by, by different landowners and people um, the houses and buildings have been dismantled and then moved to that site and rebuilt there and they have, um, we've just, they've just built an Anglo-Saxon house. Um, they've got all sorts of houses from different periods of time, basically. And they have a lot of stock fencing, which is really similar to the fences that mm, I build. Mm. And so the, my inspiration for them came from that place um, because they're practical, but they're also really strong and they're pretty. Yeah, very pretty. So I just thought there's lots of overstood hazel, which is not any good for a hurdle maker because it's just a little bit too mm. big. Um, so if you want to restore a hazel coppice that's slightly gone over, you know, it's been left a bit too long, it's a perfect use for that material. Mm, nice. And it brings coppice back into rotation at the same right, time. Because right. mm. I think with coppicing, it's hard to make a living out of twigs. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really important to add value to your wood. Yeah, right. You know, wherever you can, you've got to think of what can you do to that raw material to make sure that you can make a yeah, living. Right, definitely. Right. Sure. So using every part of it mm. and in any way you can right. to make something useful for people. Mm. You know, that's that's the road I went down mm. with it. Mm. Mm. So a lot of these like right now I'm looking at a picture of a there's like a house with really nice thatched roof. And then this, I'm guessing it's a hazel um, fence, uh, very tightly woven. Um, so I assume that's, that's a lot application is for the, the weaving aspect. But then I also see some where you have like a larger diameter pole and then uh, like a cereal. Um, is that chestnut? Oh, is it, is it a panel? Yeah. Panel. I guess it's a panel. Is this on where have you, where are you seeing on your that? on your Instagram? There's um, this looks like a, it's like a garden screen or fence. Um, oh yeah, I do I do quite a lot of those, and I've done some um, which are purely chestnut. Okay. Also, I, I, there's a local um, chestnut lath maker mm. who I use. They they cleave them all by hand. Wow. Um, 
That's a, that's amazing. So I, I buy the poles, make the frame, and then buy the larves in, and I weave them into the mm. frame. And they can look really, really lovely, actually, as backdrop for plants. Yeah, and I've done some for in, an interior, like um, someone's balustrade oh. I've done, you know, in their house. Yeah, this one, it's got, they've got like some espalier fruit trees, it looks like. Oh, yeah, that's it. That was really good. I loved that job. That was fun to yeah, do. Yeah, it's amazing. So that's, so is that, is that all chestnut then? That's all oh, chestnut, cool. yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, that was tricky because the wall was really different heights all yeah. along and it was, yeah, there's a lot to think about on that job. So it looks like, are the poles, are they like, um, is there a, 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 a groove? kind of carved in the pole and then you lock the split chestnut in there yeah that's right and so so each each slat is like hand measured Mm. to fit into those frames so there's a lot of work in them Mm. but but i weirdly quite like that (laughs) (laughs) and that's is is there any fastener or is it all it's just all wood um i do tend to panel pin on the back edge just down where they slot in just because just because obviously it's greenwood mm-hmm. and so if there's any movement you don't want them slipping yeah. at all mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they're pretty tight when they go in but it's just as that extra security mm-hmm. nice wow so you can buy that material just already split already collapsed you can buy those lards wow, yeah so you have to work them a little bit to you know get them to sometimes obviously they undulate they change in right. thickness slightly and sometimes you might need to draw a knife some of that uh-huh. off so cool yeah <laughs> yeah see that stuff i love you too. i really love that type of like that's the kind of stuff i want to do once i have this material available <laughs> yeah i want to make some screens like that it's so cool yeah it's good to plan ahead exactly right. yeah it's they, they're a lovely honey color and then they dull down they go a nice silvery right. gray so and then you do um so then you another like a little gate i'm looking at um that's all round wood is that all hazelnut most likely. Uh, is it got like sun rays sort of? No, it it's um, it's just like a just a horizontal weave of the. It looks like I'm gonna guess it's smaller diameter of the hazelnut, and then the frame of the gate is like oh, a larger yes. diameter. Um, is that all? That's all hazelnut there, most likely. Yeah, you can. Well, the frame will be chestnut, oh, okay. um, mm-hmm. and the weave could be chestnut or hazel because you can use small diameter oh, right. Right, of right. either the weave. Yeah. Now how? Yeah. And you can you can use that in the round or split. And split tends to be stronger and last a bit longer huh. than round wood. So split is better. Oh. Yeah, that was my next question is for a gate like that or any like uh you did a little garden fence where it's got the the round uh tenons holding the the everything together. Um I assume that's all Oh. Can you hear me now? Looks like my internet. All right, that was that was very very strange. I don't know. All right, my internet like kept cutting in and in and out really fast, but we fixed it. Um, We're back. Let's do some editing. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. Um, the we question I was in the middle. Again, do we? No, no, no. Everything's <laughs> oh god, that's our worst nightmare. That, happen <laughs> that happened a few that times. Oh, several times. It's happened like several two times. times. It was a whole episode, and then one time it was like thirty minutes. Yeah, Amy's, and we had to redo yeah. Amy all over. <laughs> so, um, but I think I was in the middle of asking you, what's the lifespan when you when you do either a chestnut or hazelnut fence like that? What's kind of the expected lifespan for that material? Okay, well, I did one 10 years ago, which is still there. Oh, wow. Um, nice. But, awesome. that, but that was quite a sheltered garden, and 
you know, that's probably quite unusual. Okay. She, she contacted me last year and said, oh, we might need you to come and, you know, redo that section. And then she went, actually, we've just poked it. It's still okay for maybe another year. <laughs> <laughs> I've got one outside, which is six years old, and a few of the um, top bits have come off. But it's still, you know, it's still a fence. So yeah, it just depends yeah. on the aspect on how exposed you are to the sea or the wind or, you know, it's a bit oh, variable. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. I'd That's say true. definitely five plus years, hopefully up to 10. But Nice. So if you use hazelnut as like a, a post, um, is it is it rot resistant at all when it's in the ground? No. Um, okay. I would use chestnut posts. I never use hazel for posts. Okay. Um, oh, okay. Because of the tanning mm-hmm. content, it's, you know, they last a bit longer. So yeah, mm. yeah always chestnut. Um, but yeah, they will rot off at the ground level and it also depends on the soil type. I see yeah. it, it does tend to affect it. So the more yeah, acidic sure. soils, I think it doesn't last so long. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Huh. Um, yeah, I think that's so interesting because it's like, that's also good for for you because then you have this cycle where you can go back and kind of re redo a, a fence, um, Cause you know, around here fencing, you pretty much, if it's not a, if you can find a black locust post, which are not super, they're actually very hard to come by. Right. Otherwise you're just using a pressure treated post. Um, right. And yeah. they don't last forever either. I mean, they, they can rot pretty fast too, depending on yeah. the site conditions. Mm. Um, so but it's nice. All the nasty creosote things that people used to coat onto everything. You're not allowed to use that mm. stuff anymore, are you? So posts used to last oh, for a hundred years with that stuff on. <laughs> But yeah, exactly. It's quite the same now. <laughs> yeah, I've seen I've seen a guy on YouTube recently use um, some sort of conifer, either a, a southern yellow or a, or a pine, and he would char yeah, oh, yeah the yeah. section uh, that would go in the ground, and then coat it with vegetable oil, uh-huh. and yeah. then stick it in the ground. It is and supposed to that hate. would last. Yeah, that would last uh, probably a little longer than just you know sticking a, a post in the ground that's not pressure treated. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard about that. I've, I mean, I don't, I haven't done that with mine, to be honest, but mm-hmm. I think for old buildings, they used to do it, didn't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So your, your seasonal workflow is, is very, uh, dependent upon nature. It sounds like, so you've got to cram everything in with the weather and then you've got like the things that can only be done in one season. Yeah. Um, but it's tricky because, you know, you get someone saying, oh, please can I have a gate? I've got a friend who's been waiting for a gate for probably five months. <laughs> yeah. So I, I say, you know, I, I've got a big list and, and then I, then it's coppicing time and then it's hedging time. And I think, well, I can't do a gate when I should be laying a hedge because it doesn't make sense. <laughs> and some right. people, right. lots of people are really good and they will wait. So, which is nice. I, you know, I appreciate mm. that. But I also understand if they need to find someone quicker. But I think everybody in this industry is really super busy at the moment. Mm-hmm. And everyone seems mm-hmm. to have really big long job job lists. I spoke to a hurdle wow. maker this morning who's busy and he's booked up until the middle of April. So, oh wow! Yeah, we're so, all. So what do people? What do people use busy. hurdles for? Is it kind of a decorative element? Uh, well, people use them a bit like the fences that I build. People can sometimes have a big run of hurdles instead of that. Mm. Um, or you know, people use them to screen oil tanks or. Oh, okay. All sorts oh. of reasons, you know. It's just mm-hmm. a it's mm-hmm. just a fencing product. Um same thing, but split and you have to obviously put posts in the ground to hold them up. Mm. 
Right, because they're just a freestanding panel. Sorry, pardon? I said, because they're just a freestanding panel that's woven. Yeah, typically six foot wide, but, you know, obviously oh, okay. you can change the width. But um, they, I think I think they're really good for, you know, screening things and they look they look lovely. Mm. And, I mean, I can split hazel and I, I can make hurdles, but for me, the woven fencing's really just taken off and I, I'm mm-hmm. happy to stick with that because it's it's really satisfying. And it does do a few things which hurdles which you can't do you can't achieve with a hurdle which is go around lovely curves you can make mm. curved edges or you can also drop the height you know and undulate right, it right. with the ground or you know change change the height to screen a particular part of the garden and then lower it at the other end so yeah hurdles tend to be you know just like a uniform rectangle or square shape right yeah, yeah. So it really depends on what you're trying to achieve in the garden, which thing is the pro- appropriate for you. Mm. I had a quick question about this woven fencing. I know you're using a lot of saplings or, you know, sticks rather um, to do this. You said you're, you're sourcing that from someone else because that kind of quantity is going to be hard to harvest, right? That's for the chestnut. Oh, for the, okay. That's a, yeah. Let's say also, you... also, I do use, um. there's a wildlife trust who they have volunteers and they, so they cut areas of hazel and that's that's also in my mm. village just up the road i see oh, wow. i see so I, let's say i use materials sorry, go ahead. as well because i can't always cut as much as i need because i'm doing the hedges as well right, so I'll right. Cut my areas but if i then run out i will use weaving rods from up the road and buy them mm. off those mm. people just Got to it. supplement Got my it. own sources you know yeah so if i wanted to do a woven fence like that because i really like that woven fence um idea that you've done or you're doing rather if i get a log let's say uh you know a six foot or an eight foot section log and i split that log into small small sections like you know maybe a couple inches in diameter and it's fairly green can i use that instead and uh make a woven fence out of that uh how well is it is it bendy yeah, I mean it's green. It'll have high moisture content. You can you can probably bend it. This is like a you know let's say a poplar log a log poplar. Okay. Six or eight foot in diameter, and I'm you know just splitting it into rods essentially. Yeah, I could, mean, I, could I use? See, I don't see why not. Yeah. Okay. Would it taper? You said you would said it the taper, or would it just be the same thickness all the way along? Oh, I guess I could taper it, but most likely it'll probably be the same thickness all along. It'd probably be an easier way to do it. It might be tricky just because with a woven fence, you start with the butt end and then you'll weave it mm. to the tip and then you I sort see. of overlap. I see. But like when you weave oh, a basket, okay. essentially, you know, you would overlap the butt end and the tip end so that it's a continuous line. Oh, interesting. So, so you do want it to be to tapered. That. So that, right, right. Okay. All right. Cause it's going to be pretty hard to get quantities <laughs> like that for around here. You could always, you could always split it into like the slats though. The yeah. Left. Yeah. You're right. Slats. Yeah, yeah, you could make panels. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Mike's wheels are turning over here. I know. I'm really trying to think of a way to, to do this fence on my property. So is, it, is the grain on it really nice and straight so it would split easily like that? Would you be able to clean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, if we get, if I get a nice log of, you know, let's say poplar, poplar or, maple. Grow, or maple, you know, those, those trees here grow pretty nice and straight. And uh, so, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm sure I could, I mean, the tricky part would be, Sourcing the log, you know, and then having to split it myself. 
while it's still fairly green uh, and then doing it while it's still green, right? Because if you wait too long, mm, then yeah. uh, it'd be too late by then. So I think you would have to split it and then, you know, have every post set up and ready to go and then weave it uh, soon after. Yeah, because it would dry quite quickly, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, if it was, uh, you know, spring or summertime, then yeah. But if it was maybe winter and I had it set outside, maybe it'll hold on to the moisture a little longer. The thing is, the larves that I use, um, sometimes I use them really fresh, you know, straight from the mm. supplier. And sometimes, so I've got some in storage at the moment, but I'll still mm. be able to use those even though they've dried out because they're quite thin. Right. You know, right. they're, they're still just, bendy, right? What, I don't know, five six mil in diameter, something like that. Mm. Okay. All the way down. Okay. Um, then there's okay. still, there's still some flex in it. Right. Right. Now, do you, Rosie, do you consider yourself a green woodworker? Well, that term that, I don't that know. Goes... I suppose so in a loose sort of way. <laughs> in my head, a green woodworker is someone who carves things like you, you know, make bowls and spoons, but yeah. you know, I do work with wood that is fresh. So I suppose so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the question the question is have you carved a spoon yet have i i've yeah. carved a coffee scoop and i've made okay. my next door neighbor a spatula out of a piece of tree which we cut down for them in their garden which they were very oh, nice. happy with so yeah I've that made counts a few small things yeah so you're a green woodworker yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I made a coffee see, that means i am one <laughs> <laughs> see that's that was kind of why I was, well, that was one of the big reasons I was excited to talk to you is, um, I really do believe that the work you do is green woodworking and sure. it is yeah. sloyd because the whole, for sure, I mean, you've listened to some of our episodes, so you've heard the answers people have for what is sloyd. Yeah. Um, but as like, especially when I researched like back in the day, like sloyd was just like whatever you did with, with trees and right. well, really there's like any material you use to, to make things that you needed. So whether it was cloth or wood or metal. It was just being crafty and, and utilizing it in this way that, you know, creates this product that you needed. Yeah. And so I really, I really see the coppice woodwork and, and the type of stuff you do as Sloyd. It's just not like, it's not what is packaged as like the meme of, because people just think like spoon carving or yeah, chair making. And, yeah. Or, yeah. 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 So I really do think that, and that's, I want to kind of spread that yeah, so that it, it's incorporated into the kind of people's minds as to you know it's not just because the spoons people just get fixated on spoons i feel like right yeah right. there's I so mean, much I, more i have used a chisel so <laughs> 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 so yeah definitely i'm in the in the green woodworking club <laughs> yeah nice because you're because what you do is like also like natural building could mm -hmm. be mm -hmm. could be a term you describe what you're doing because you're using natural materials to build things right. so right. it's the the word part's funny because it's it's you know, it's pretty open-ended. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I, so, when I first heard about this podcast, I did look up the word Sloyd because I was like, okay. <laughs> what it was. <laughs> I thought I should know what this means. And so, yeah, well, that's I, good. I thought yeah. I'd better look it up and came to the same conclusion as you, you know, that it's making things, being crafty basically. And, you know, right. making things of raw materials. And so, yeah, I, I think I fit the category. <laughs> you sure absolutely. do <laughs> absolutely see and that, that's why i like the word sloyd because it just makes people think like around here no one knows what sloyd means but yeah <laughs> they remember who i am because they see the word sloyd right. and even if they don't know it's just like oh what's sloyd that's interesting mm -hmm. um, i actually have a neighbor he calls me sloyd 
<laughs> he thinks that's your name. Yeah, that's funny. Um, I think Mark Mark's nicer. <laughs> <laughs> so you also um, do you, you have a uh, a charcoal business? It looks like as well. Mm. Yeah, but we're very new to that. But yeah, we started the first season last year. Okay. Mm. Now, if I remember correctly, I feel like I read that you you guys took over someone's existing charcoal business. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Well, the man who I originally learned all the coppicing things from. Oh, okay. Um, he was he's been a charcoal burner for for years and years. Um, he used to mm. burn charcoal at the museum that I was talking about earlier. Okay. So he he was an employee at the museum, and yeah, what he knows everything about charcoal. He he also mm. every year he does a traditional earth burn. Um, mm, nice. And he's worked ring kilns for years. The you know, the metal ring kilns, but then yeah. He bought a retort, which uh-huh. um, I don't know how long ago that was now, maybe 10 years, eight years ago, something like that. Um, yeah. And so he's moved with the times, really. He, he knows about all the different techniques. And hmm. then he decided his retort was on its last legs because he'd used it for years and years. Um, and he decided hmm. that rather than invest in a new one, it was time to retire from it because he's in his hmm. 70s now. Oh, wow. um, so Phil and I decided that we would take it on because he he's you know he's built up the name of the business over his lifetime and he wanted to see it continue so mm. we decided it would be a good thing to do for us too because you know I have wood from the coppice which right needs a home and from hedge laying sometimes and Phil's a tree yeah. surgeon so he has wood from his job also yeah Nice. And it's a really great way of using that wood. So the charcoal that you guys make is primarily marketed as like a cooking charcoal, is that right? Yeah, for barbecues, yeah, mainly. Yeah. Nice. Nice. But also um, um we do we have a hopper which separates out the 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 barbecue charcoal from mm-hmm. all the fines. Oh nice. So the fines get sold to a company um who make biochar. Oh sweet. Oh cool. That's awesome. Yeah, can you can you tell us a little bit about the charcoal making process? Because I think people don't even, I mean, commonly people think like with charcoal is just what happens when you make a fire, but <laughs> yeah, no. um, there's just a little more specific than that. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, the retort is basically there's an inner chamber where you load all of the wood that you're going to carbonize. Um, that gets bolted shut in a sort of airtight mm-hmm. chamber, and then. With uh, in, outside of that, there's another chamber which contains the firebox underneath. Mm. Um, so basically, you set a fire underneath it, um, bring that inner chamber up to a certain temperature, uh, 450 degrees roughly, um, and then mm. cap it. And then all the wood gases, which would normally get released out into the atmosphere, you know, in a ring kiln, say, they get fed back down into the firebox and mm-hmm. get burnt off. Mm-hmm to create more heat to carry on cooking your wood as it were mm-hmm. and then any excess gases which are you know are not needed they get burnt off on a, another chimney mm-hmm. it's much less polluting and um it's basically a win-win because the yield is higher as well oh, okay then nice. with other techniques so, so less ash yeah yeah well no everything that goes is put into that middle chamber no comes ash. out as charcoal you yeah, don't yeah. lose any. Oh, water. awesome! So in a awesome. ring kiln, you have your fire within that the same right. chamber, don't you? 
So with this mm -hmm. one, the fire's underneath. So you don't get you don't get any loss. You get shrinkage, but none of your wood is combusted, basically. Yeah. Oh, very nice. Because I, I have read that the ring counts, and for people that don't know, it's basically like a big, what are they, like eight-foot diameter steel rings, and then they have like a domed cap on them. Yeah, and chimneys. And, that, and, and you just that you pretty much just fill with wood and then start a fire, and then once it gets roaring, you just suffocate it. Is that essentially basically, how it works? Basically, yeah, yeah. So, hmm. but, so but you, you will lose some of that wood, which which right. put right. it in charcoal. Right. Because I, I do a, I make biochar maybe once or twice a year. I do a little charcoal burn and I use a little cone pit. I'm not sure if you've seen this method, but you dig a, like a brush cone shape. I'm sorry. Is it, what's a cone pit? Is that like a brush, like a brush burner or something like a. So it's literally just a pit in the ground that's just cone shaped. Um, okay. And there's like a, you can, I mean, you can just dig a cone, but there's like a ratios you can work by. But anyway, it's starts probably three foot diameter at the top and tapers down to a point in the ground. Yeah. And you just burn it like a bonfire, but you keep piling on wood until the, so as you keep piling on wood, it suffocates everything below it. And then once everything's, you know, carbonized, you quench it with water. So it's, it's really, it's not really for making charcoal for cooking. It's mostly for making biochar. Well, um, um, in the coppice, we do something similar actually. Um, oh, okay. So, but we, we don't dig a pit, but, we um because the coppice is quite a big area we have a yeah. thing called a brush burner which is just mm. like a metal four-sided metal container basically with a flat bottom yeah. so you, you can move it around the woods with you oh. and what we do is set the fire in there um and then all of the trimmings which can't be used for anything else we pile up as we go along making the products and then mm. basically burn it in this brush burner and then mm. at the end of the day or at the end of that session, you load all the fines into an oil drum and seal it tight. Mm. So we don't put water on it, but we just seal it tight to starve it of oxygen. Okay. Interesting. And then it creates the fines. Do you oh. put water on to put it out? Yeah, just to stop the fire so it doesn't go to ash. Yeah. Um, there's still a little bit of ash, uh, but it's it's minuscule. Um, but and yeah, do you, I, do I do that for the biochar. So I put it right into my compost pile and let the composting process create the biochar essentially. Because that then activates it, doesn't it? Yeah, because I have done other things like I've put urine on it, I've put uh, compost tea onto it, but for me it's just easier just to put it into the compost pile hmm. to yeah. activate it. Um, and for people that don't know what biochar is, because it's kind of the term that's out there, it's kind of popular, but I feel like a lot of people don't know what it means. But it's essentially just charcoal that's been. Um, activated with some sort of nutrient or biology that's compost or yeah i've seen it i've seen it done in di many different ways but you're just charging oh, yeah. you're basically getting the charcoal to soak up uh, a nutrient yeah so that when you put it in the soil it acts as like a fertilizer or as a, a, a bank for for nutrients and for biology to to take mm -hmm. hold but biochar is it's a it's an incredible product i've had really great results using it in our garden Have you? farm yeah, um, I've noticed. Well, what I've noticed is it takes about a season for it to really kind of mellow out and 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 have any impact. But it's definitely helped with water retention, mm. um, and just for fertility retention because we do a lot of uh, soil balancing. So we'll add minerals and so on to our our soils. And uh, I just what I this is not I haven't like proven this in any scientific way, but from observation, the charcoal seems to help keep those minerals where I want them instead of them. Out so, mm -hmm. so it is um, doing its job, 
Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I, and I add, like I said, I add it to our compost and then that just gets spread. Um, and that seems to work really well, but yeah, I've been a big proponent of it for, I've been playing around with that comb pit method for, I don't know, like six or seven years now and mm-hmm. had good results with it. And How I just, and it's a great, do you, is it on a fairly large scale or is it just for your garden or? Yeah, this is just a small scale. We're covering like 10,000 square feet. So not a huge area. Um, and it's, it's really, for me, it's really nice because it's, it's a way for me to take, uh, for example, I usually use it to burn apple and pear tree prunings, um, which are, you know, they're weird to work with cause they're just all these crazy shapes and they don't stack well and they don't, yeah. they're just hard to break down. Bouncy. So what we'll do is, yeah, they're very awkward. So we'll just pile them up near our charcoal pit and then just have a night around the fire, uh, just with hand saws and pruners, just cutting it up and just throwing it into the pit and burning it. Um, you can make pretty short order, short, short work of, of a, you know, big, messy, tangly pile of prunings. And then you get this you know, one pit for us yields, I don't know, it's like 20 gallons worth of charcoal approximately. That's the beauty of it, isn't it? You're basically turning rubbish, which you have no other use for into something extremely useful. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, I love that's it. That's what I love about things like that. It's just, it's a no brainer, isn't it? Yeah. And the way you guys are doing it, it's, you're creating an even more valuable product than the wood could ever really be on its own yeah especially those so you- rubbish piles which would <laughs> in the past they would have just been burnt on the bonfire so you know it's much much better to be using a container and and then stack that up and store it ready to get collected by this company so otherwise it'd just be burnt off into the atmosphere completely right. useless yeah yeah. So, um, this thing's brilliant because absolutely every single part of that plant gets used for something. Right. Yeah. It's amazing. It's really, I, I love, I love that part of the whole process. Um, so you guys, then you bag it and then it's sold like at markets and stuff. Yeah. We, we have, um, you know, wholesale customers who we sell to directly. Um, oh, nice. so you know, larger quantities and then we're hoping, well, I've got a new business idea up my sleeve, which <laughs> will mean that I then have a shop front for all of my products and mm. other people's products, including our charcoal. So um, in the next year, 18 months, I'm hoping that that will come to fruition and be nice. another sort of place where we can sell our products from. That's amazing. Awesome. Wow. Well, hey, we ended up covering a lot of ground. <laughs> yeah, we did. I'm sure it did. Sure uh, did. I'm sure we could go on and on. Um but is there anything else you'd like to add to our conversation that we didn't cover? Um I don't know. I can't <laughs> think of anything off the top of my head. I think we've done quite well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, we have. Yeah, it's amazing. So it's it's just cool that your work is it's just like a full circle thing with the charcoal business and then you've got this whole seasonal flow of managing the plants that you use the material from and it's really, I, it's, yeah, it's a lot, you know, like most spoon carvers, they don't even really cut their own wood. It's, it's, right. it's just buy a blank. You find some old wood or buy a blank. Um, so it's cool how you're like hands-on as much as possible and really. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I wouldn't change my job for anything. I, I'm, I'm never going to be a millionaire, but yeah. I feel, <laughs> I, it sounds really cheesy, but I sort of feel like one. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. My job is just like playing. You know, when you're a child yeah. and you, right. you play outside and get covered in mud and climb up trees and things. I feel like this is the adult version of that. 
<laughs> it kind of is, eh? I'm happy that's with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's lovely. That's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, um, you kind of answered our last question, which is what is Sloyd? So yeah, there it you feels go. redundant to ask that again. Um, yeah. but I just want to say thank you for coming on the show and appreciate you sharing, uh, all of your knowledge and everything about what you're doing there. Yeah, well, I, I hope people get a lot out of it. Anyone. You're welcome. Yeah. So hopefully now we will put the, we put the bug in everyone's ear and, uh, we'll start to think of coppicing and yeah, hedge laying, hedge laying as, hedges, as, yeah. In America. <laughs> well, yeah, I look forward to progress updates. Yes, I'm <laughs> yeah. gonna reach out to you about my uh, my yard. Okay. <laughs> yeah, keep an eye out. Mike's Mike's got a he's got a woven fence in his mind. Yes, I do. Cool. <laughs> Brilliant. Awesome. All right. Alrighty. Well, thank you very much, Rosie. Okay. Appreciate nice it. to talk to you. All right. Night. Night. Take care. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. Bye. You want to do like a? Oh yeah. Do a wrap up. Yeah. Wrap up. Yeah, wrap up. Let's see. So, <laughs> um, Man, that was a lot to talk about. Yeah, I felt like so a awesome. like a, a new kid in school. Like I was like, "What is happening?" <laughs> yeah, but I'm serious. I, I really believe that. Like, yeah. in, in that getting, I, that's really my vision for Sloyd in mm-hmm. the future. Is how do we, you know, integrate all these other practices so it's not just limited to this one. Yeah, it's kind of one narrow bandwidth of spoon carving and bowl turning, which are amazing, but. Yeah, it's very resourceful, like what she does, you know, taking a material and using every bit of it to create something beautiful. You know, like those fences that she does in the gates are yeah, like they're amazing. really amazing, really amazing product that she's doing there. So, yeah, I encourage everyone to uh, we get the links in the show notes to go check out Rosie's work. Yeah, both on her. Uh, her work with her coppicing and all of the fencing and stuff that she does on her personal page and then her charcoal business is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, we uh so Mike and I are we're starting to get a little more organized around here at Sloydcast. Yeah. <laughs> New Year's resolution. <laughs> <laughs> we've got a we've got a quite the string of guests lined up. And like yeah. I mentioned, teased earlier, our next guest is uh uh Mark Krawcheck out of Vermont. He's got some really he's got a lot more to add to this conversation about kind of the history of coppice woodwork, um coppice agroforestry. So we're gonna be getting into that nice. here soon. Um yeah. What else? We've got some merch. We've been working on this for shoot, like I don't know, seven months or something. We've been yeah. playing around with some merch. So mm-hmm. we're uh we're kinda starting to dip our feet into uh how do we um start to generate a little bit of income from our podcasting efforts. So mm-hmm. uh, just another reminder to everyone out there, if you enjoy the podcast to do your bit, um, spread the word. Uh it's been a great we've had an amazing response so far just through our Instagram, which is really our only way that we're getting the word out there. Right. Um, but we're going to start working on, uh, we got a mailing list that's got people signing up for it and we're probably going to start putting stuff on YouTube. So that'll reach a YouTube audience yep. and, uh, work on our website, our website, but yep. hopefully just trying to build a way to, uh, to grow this, get the word out, spread the, spread the love of Sloyd across the world. And, uh, uh, if you value it, do what you can. At some point we'll ask you to invest some monetary. Yeah. We're not quite ready. Not ready. But if you want, by all means, let us know. If you want to drop us, you know, some money in PayPal or something, just let me know. Yeah. Shoot us a message. We will happily accept donations. Yeah. Help us cover some of the costs. That At any rate, slow it out. Slow it out.